Well, some songs launch you into the pulpit, and that would have been one of them. So I'm excited to preach God's Word this morning to you from Galatians chapter 5. So I'd invite you to turn your Bibles there to Galatians chapter 5, and let me read our passage where I'll be preaching from, beginning at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, if you think that I'm checking my phone, I'm just creating a clock so that I can see when to start and stop. So we're we're good. Well, this is a sobering text And sobering texts create sobering messages. We were sobered this week on Valentine's Day, no less, with the devastating news of another shooting massacre at Parkland, Florida, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. A little bit after 2 p.m., February the 14th, a 19-year-old former student went in there and he slayed 17 Um, People, those um, who were everyone from coaches, um, athletic director, I believe, and students and men, women, girls, um, young ladies. I scrolled through some of the pictures, uh, praying for them, praying for families as we ought. We ought to hold one another up in prayer, even in terms of our country's citizenship, praying for families. And... We know that they were real bullets and real deaths, and these are real families. And there were real people who stood up in noble efforts of self-sacrifice, who gave their lives to save lives, and we're touched by that. But perhaps in our country, we're not moved enough even. Uh, I know there are liberal agendas that are asking questions like how many shootings have happened, how many have happened since Columbine in 1999, how many have happened this year. But it is a... Pondering question to ask because we get used to hearing about these things in our country now, don't we? Oh, here's another one. And it reveals to us the state of depravity that lives and resides in the human heart. Satan is called the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is inspiring murderous intent and actions. Apart from Christ, people are under Satan's domain. They're under his spell. They're under his bewitching influence. They're 
assaulted by the flaming arrows. And within the church, perhaps this kind of massacring picture serves us well to be on alert for another kind of attack that regularly is waged within these walls or within local churches in general, and that is Satan's attacks through enemies that are bringing an errant message, a false gospel, even minimally false, which makes it all false. Satan is inspiring people to do these kinds of attacks, whether we realize it or not, whether we are discerning the attacks that hurt people, not just physically, but there is a condemning influence when someone comes under the spell of false teaching. What Paul is exposing in the Galatian church at the earliest stages of the early church is still pervasive today, and people are lost in a fog of confusion, not knowing who they are, why they're here, what's generating the problems within their lives and their hearts, and they're living in a living hell on earth, walking precariously towards the precipice of eternity where they could drop off into an eternal hell, a Christless eternity Without God, Satan is waging war, as John 10 put it in the teachings of Christ, a thief on a mission to steal, kill, and destroy. Acts chapter 20 says that there will be wolves who are clothed in sheep's clothing or disguised, angel of lights that come in and they're not sparing the flock, they're causing people, as Galatians 5.4 says, to stumble, to perhaps be severed from Christ, never trusting in the true saving gospel message at all. What is striking to me is how much we as Christians don't really care about this dynamic or think about this dynamic, if I could be so charitable. We, we just let this dynamic go, the warfare within the church. But most people who drop out of Christianity, who are never Christians in the first place, and, and they, they, they hear the message and then leave and leave in a hardened state, most of those people have come under an influence, and I would say it this way, under an influencer, Most people have been influenced by someone else to walk away from the faith. There is typically, with sad spiritual outcomes, a shared culpability in what happened. Typically, usually. And though we know we're responsible, we need to take a stronger responsibility for brothers and sisters in our midst People succumb to false teaching, and we need to be noble Christians who will step out in front of these assaults and say, that's not true, this is true. That's not the path, this is the path. That path of worldliness, that path of immorality will threaten your soul, whereas this path of truth, this path of holiness is a path for life, abundant life. In the gospel, Satan was the first false teacher, wasn't he? He is where sin was born in his heart and then he slithered into God's 
holy paradise and he was able to influence doubt into the minds of Eve and then Adam. In mixing these doubts, he destroyed mankind or contaminated it with sin that has been born in the heart of every man, woman, child that's ever lived except Christ. And it's been passed down from generations ever since. Listen, heresies abound. They abound in broad ways and in small ways. I was reading an article uh, on a book review. It was written by David Schrock from the Nine Marks Ministry. He's associated with Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And he wrote a review on the book, When Heaven Invades Earth by Bill Johnson. This is a heresy that is influencing many in the church. He is what I would call a hyper-charismatic. He is a continuationist, though the article isn't taking on his position on the sign gifts, though he wouldn't even be someone that charismatics, mainline charismatics would affirm because he promotes bizarre manifestations. But the problem that the article has and the The issue that Strzok is taking with Johnson is his heresy regarding the Trinity, regarding Christ, regarding God. He basically is saying that Johnson promotes God as an impersonal power. That's not God our Father. He promotes the Holy Spirit as a drug, as a drug, as something that's a substance that can take you places. This is the kind of blasphemy that we should be willing to learn about and actually be willing to say something about. He defines heresy, Schrock does, as heresy isn't merely theological error. It's error that tampers with our understanding of God and Christ and threatens, if not completely undermines our standing before him. Historically, heresy has been saved for matters that deny the Trinity and reject the early church councils, what the early church doctrine stood for. Basically, we have to be careful when we use the word heresy at all, but we, when we find heresy, we should not shrink back from using it if we must. Johnson, Bill Johnson believes that Christ is when he was on earth, laid aside his divinity entirely and became solely a human that needed to be born again, that he was the example of God consciousness. And this is just liberalism in new dress, trying to dumb down the divinity of Jesus Christ. That was the liberal do-gooding Christian movement that was born out of Friedrich Schleiermacher from the 1800s, and we have to stand against this. There's a music movement called the Jesus Culture that's from Bill Johnson's church, and I would just put you on alert for that because much of what they sing isn't overtly heretical. It's very experiential, but it's probably on a lot of your teenagers' podcast selection, and it is said by Christianity Today to outstrip Adele and Coldplay downloads, though I don't even know who Coldplay is, uh, it's pervasive. And this is the gateway into hearing heresy. Satan comes as an angel of light. If it was easy to discern, then it wouldn't be satanic. If there wasn't some good in what people say, and then you sprinkle in the bad, then it wouldn't be satanic. But satanic 
messages come in forms of cotton candy where it looks very good, but then it is detrimental to your health. Well, this is the point of uh, the series that I want to undergo here for perhaps a couple weeks, and it's gaining discernment. It's understanding how the Bible describes false teachers and false teaching. It's understanding the subtle attacks of the enemy. So we're understanding, if you have your outline, paths, pursuits, and patterns of false teachers. Paths, pursuits, and patterns. And I want to begin in verse 7 and 8 with point one. They, the false teachers, are on a murderous mission. A murderous mission. Look at verse 7. It says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul begins actually positively. He's shifting gears in the main away from the Galatians. He's been talking to them. He's been calling out to them. He's been clarifying and teaching the gospel to them. He's been giving his testimony to them. This has been the book of Galatians so far. And now he's calling out the false teachers, the troublemakers, the agitators within the church. But he begins on a positive note saying, you were running well. You were running with a rapid pace. There were positives in your Christian sanctification. Remember, they had greeted Paul as an angel, Galatians 4 says. They were delighted in the ministry with Paul in Galatians 4.15 in blessedness. They had joy in their lives and somehow their joy had been cut short. Christians often will sign up saying they're following Christ and they sign up for a 5K instead of the Christian marathon. But Christianity is a marathon. It's a race that you commit to for all 26 miles. You're committing all the way to the end. The Greco-Roman Olympics, we have the Winter Olympics on right now, but the Greco-Roman Olympics were not uh, presenting a marathon race like you would think with oval tracks or something like that, but this was a very rugged race. This was a race with competitors that were battling against each other on rugged terrain, running in a single direction towards a post that they would lap and come around and come back to the finish line on. This is the kind of competition, this rugged competition that Paul is speaking of. It's endurance. It's the commitment to persevere. It's, it's the commitment, Galatians 5, 4, not to be severed from Christ. It's the commitment to not pull up with a hammy or be cut short from the race where you have to stop running. Running is the commitment to go all the way through the competition to the end. This is not running to become a Christian or to keep yourself a Christian running is for the runners that God has made you to be and me to be. Christians are runners. Christians are athletes. Paul said this of himself in Acts 20. He said, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians nine twenty four. do you not know that In a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Hebrews chapter 12, we have a race 
that has been set before us. We're runners. We're runners. And Paul here now is calling out people who've hindered the race. The word hindered here is a military term for an obstacle. It's the idea that there has been a trap set or a barrier set in the road that they have tripped over. So he's calling them out. He's saying, who hindered you? Who? It's a rhetorical question. The answer would be obvious to the reader and the listener. I have sort of a suspicion that Paul knew who had hindered them, even knowing them personally. He isn't naming names. He speaks of the agitators or the Judaizers in third person throughout the book of Galatians. But he didn't only speak in terms of um, the third person. Uh, You remember in Galatians chapter 2 that he called James out saying that certain men came from James. They came up from Jerusalem. And he later also is calling out Cephas in verse 14. I said to Cephas, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So Paul will name names. There is a time to warn the flock and name names. And then there's the sense in which he's trying to get the readers to examine themselves. Who hindered you? What's going on? I'm not even going to go into the specific details and call it out right now. I want you to turn inward and examine yourself and see that you were running well. You were running at a rapid pace. You were filled with joy. And now something has changed. Something has shifted in your life. You are now being burdened by something, which is the legalism that we've talked about. You're drained. You're wearied, you're guilt-ridden, you're burdened. Hebrews 12, again, verse 1, lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run the race of endurance. It's like starting the Boston Marathon, as one person put it, if, it, if a female, trying to run it in high heels or, or trying to run the Boston Marathon with a backpack on or a 60-pound suitcase. doesn't work. There are sins of lust and pride and unforgiveness that weigh us down where we can't run well. We can't fly as Christians. We can't fulfill the picture of uh, a runner who throws his head back in a smiling joy who's reaching for the prize. We can't do that. We, if burdened down in this way, will run sluggishly. The sin, though, that the Galatians were participating in was the sin of tolerance. The sin of tolerance. They weren't called out here for sins of lust and sins of, you know, things of Corinthian nature. They weren't falling prey to immorality. They were falling prey to the allowance of false teaching in their midst, the tolerance of it. They were accommodating it. They were trying to make everybody happy. They were living in a peace with all cost mindset, and it was causing them to be injured, some of whom could be rocky ground where no root is there, where they would fall away, Matthew 13, people who would be severed, people who would never have known Christ because they were allowing for error within the church. Remember what I said at the beginning. 
where there's a shared culpability when people fall away. We share in responsibility to protect each other from immoralities, but also from error. We have to step in the fray. We have to put ourselves out there. We have to be willing to say something for people's sakes. Because these Judaizers, they were running as athletes, but not Christian athletes. And they were not competing by the rules. Galatians had dropped their guard. And we know from watching the Olympics how tragic it is when people stumble when people fall, I was watching it with the boys yesterday, I think, where they were, the skiers were going up and, you know, it gives you the backstory and draws you in. You got the, got the, two, uh, the two elementary kids, they were in the same class together and they didn't know each other, right? You remember this, some of you? No, you didn't watch it, I did. Anyway, but they're both from Connecticut. They have footage of them skiing as little boys and a girl and, you know, they and then here it is, and, and it's the big jump of his life to earn the gold. And the girl athlete is standing there watching, rooting him on. It's a childhood friendship, and he goes up and does everything just perfectly. And then he kind of crashes and skids out and not going to get gold. You know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Just all your hopes dashed in a moment. But on the other hand, when you persevere, when you keep going, and when you go back into the competition and you don't quit and you keep persevering, there is great joy in that as well. These believers, they've been knocked out of the lane of grace, and Paul was confronting them because they were obeying a rules religion. They were obeying a self-salvation that was taking them off the course. They weren't obeying the gospel that had been taught for the last two chapters. It's all traced back to an influence and an influencer. There's an interesting word connection in verse 7 to verse 8. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That word is the original Greek word for being persuaded by truth. You were being led by truth. You were were under the persuasion of the gospel. And then verse 8 This persuasion is not from him who calls you. You have God's persuasion in the gospel and you have a false persuasion that is engineered by Satan himself. You have obedience by faith and you have obedience by works. You have a saving gospel and you have a gospel of merit that will not save you. Perhaps you heard of the Olympic champion runner Louis Zamperini. Some of you have uh, read the book Unbroken, perhaps seen the movie. He lived uh, to the age of 97 and competed in, a, in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and also was a prisoner of war in Japan for two and a half years during World War II. And perhaps a less than glorious event um, is... Some of you have heard about it in Zamperini's career, where as a runner in 1938, um, the NCAA championships in Minneapolis. Um, Randy, can anything good come from Minneapolis? Yeah, okay, there we go. Where Zamperini was the man to beat. He He had coaches from rival schools who were ordering their runners to sharpen their spikes and slash Louis and take him out. The author of uh, Unbroken, Laura Hillenbrand, she writes about it this way. She, she says, halfway through the race, 
Just as Louis was about to move ahead for the lead, several runners shouldered around and boxing him in. Louis tried repeatedly to break loose, but he couldn't get around the other men. Suddenly, the man beside him swerved in and stomped on his foot, impaling Louis's toe with his spike. A moment later, the man ahead began kicking backward, cutting both of Louis's shins. A third man elbowed Louis's chest so hard that it cracked Louis's rib. To read on if you want to find out what happened beyond that. But false teachers are like this. They box us in. They're coming in. They're trying to take you out of the lane of grace. And false teachers are malevolent. They are evil. They are trying to do damage. And it's not just, this is not just a message to discern the false teacher in your life. It's to discern the false teachers in other people's lives and to offer help. Well, verse 8 clarifies the source of this. This is not from him, not from God who calls you. This is from Satan himself. This is from the agitators. You have a saving gospel call, a saving persuasion, and you have a damning, condemning persuasion. You have a call from the devil, a satanic summons, and then you have a gospel summons. Call here being a saving call. This is not the whosoever will call. That is a saving call in the Bible. Mark 8, 34, whosoever will may come. That is the general gospel call. But Galatians 1, 6 in this verse speaks of the effectual call, the call to believe, the call where God summons a heart and draws someone to Christ personally. Galatians 1, 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. And then you have this call as well. You're being hindered, this persuasion of him who has called you, him who has saved you. You're being hindered. You're being stunted within the race. We know that those who are called, according to Romans 8, 30, will be glorified, but we don't want to be derailed along the Christian path, even though we're headed to heaven. Number two. So the first point is their mission is murderous. The second point is their influence is widespread. Their influence is widespread. And this comes from a ancient proverb that Paul quotes, and he it's cited throughout the New Testament. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little yeast will corrupt the whole batch of dough. Paul, in verse 9, he's moving from an athlete's metaphor to cooking, to ceremony and ceremonial offerings and ceremonial time periods in the Jewish calendar like Passover He's quoting this proverb, and it reminds us of even the verse in James that a small, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. This is an axiomatic thought where only the smallest bit of sin, only the smallest taint of error within good theology can mess people up. I think of uh, 2 Corinthians, how we are committed to a pure and simple devotion to Christ. If anybody brings a different gospel, if anybody is, is saying, you know, Jesus, 
Yes, he was God, but then when he was in his miracle ministry, he was acting only as a man. That's not Christ. That's another Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not the church. That kind of heresy will mess people up. When the Jews prepared for Passover, they never were permitted to have any unleavened bread or they only made unleavened bread. They weren't allowed to have any yeast or any leaven within their camp, within their tent, within their territory. Exodus twelve fifteen says, seven days, you shall eat unleavened bread. Remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Think about the seriousness of that. If you break this ceremonial law, you're cut off. Deuteronomy 16 Two and four required unmixed sacrifices where there was no leavened bread as part of that ceremony. It couldn't be present even in the territory. The seriousness of this ceremonial law teaches us the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of what it pictures where a little yeast, it's, it's pervasive throughout the batch of dough. A little sin is pervasive within the flock. Jesus condemned the Pharisees. Matthew 16, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Think about how gracious Jesus was to the Samaritan woman at the well. How gracious Jesus was to Zacchaeus who was committing larceny against people. How gracious he was. And then you get to Matthew 22 and 23 and Jesus is calling out false teachers with the gravest, with the strongest, with the most potent and the most condemning words that you hear from the lips of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7 is where leaven is not false teaching, but leaven is immorality. It says, your boasting is not good. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You're really holy. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The context here is church discipline. What had happened here and the crisis here is that someone had committed immorality and was unrepented and needed to be put out of the church. He needed to be separated from so that he could see his sin, so that he would be saved on the day of redemption. And it's a rescue passage, but it is a passage where there is a requirement of church discipline and separation for the purpose of repentance. But again, in the Galatian church, and I'm not saying they didn't have their sin problems, but in the Galatian church, in the Galatians situation, what Paul was calling out was an accommodation and a tolerance for false teaching. The church cannot be tolerant of that. Martin Luther said, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. Spurgeon said, one man's influence can destroy thousands. And just just in your mind, upload any heretical TV preacher where they say, well, I'm not exactly sure that other religions aren't making it to heaven. I'm not going to judge them. Well, speakers like that, they stay on bestseller lists. Anybody who's naming the name of Christ and is a bestseller has his book in hardback in a shiny you know, cover in the airport scares me typically. 
Now, that person is probably compromising something in terms of the gospel because otherwise it wouldn't have such a widespread influence. It's just a little bit that corrupts so many. Thousands of people have fallen prey to such a small bit of influence. And people are unsettled. Look at verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you. People get unsettled. People get shaken or troubled. And such a small cancer cell can metastasize so quickly throughout the whole body. Recently, I felt the effects of this watching a friend of mine's spouse from a distance uh, really go down in a decaying sense. She has a non-smoker's lung cancer that spread to her brain and all kinds of things. This is a former mentor pastor of mine. It's his wife and super sad. And she had no idea that she had cancer in her body and it had spread severely where she had to go under gamma knife surgery. And then she tried a, uh, a form of therapy and it didn't work, immune therapy. And now chemotherapy is the last resort to spare what little time she has left on earth. But the cancer cell is the picture of sin left unchecked within the body. Ben Franklin said, for one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For one of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. For one of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Every believer, every one of you is responsible for this message. Do you see it? You're all responsible to understand the guardianship, the stewardship we have in the gospel. We guard each other in Christ. That's family. That's where you're willing to have the hard conversation, say the hard thing, have the hard meeting with a cup of coffee or no coffee with God's word. And you say, where are you spiritually? What is going on? That's what preserves holiness in the church. That's what, again, we guard against. We guard against being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion of Christ. Second Corinthians 11.3. Well, the third point. The third point this morning. Their penalty is inescapable. Their mission is murderous. Their influence is widespread. And their penalty is inescapable. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Huh, we needed that beginning of verse 10, don't we? Paul is shifting his focus back on the Galatians one final time as a means of encouragement. He's saying, I really believe in the Lord on your behalf that you are not going to follow this persuasion. Verse 10 gives that word persuasion one more time. And when you read it in the English, you don't see the word family here, but verse 7, the word obeying. In verse 8, the word persuasion, and in verse 10, the word confidence are all from the same Greek word. In other words, Paul is saying, I, who hindered you from being persuaded by biblical gospel truth. We're calling that out. Examine yourself. Verse 8, he's saying this persuasion, gospel persuasion, is not this persuasion. This is Satan's persuasion. And then in verse 10, he's saying, I have 
I am being persuaded in my heart that in the Lord you will not take another view. I have a strong persuasion that the gospel persuasion is going to win over Satan's persuasion. You see how it connects? I'm persuaded that you're going to make it. As bad as it gets, as pervasive as sin's influences is, are, you're going to make it. The Judaizers are persuasive. They are giving a formula of self-salvation. But Paul's confidence is founded in a source that gives him great confidence, great persuasion that they're going to make it. Note Paul's confidence was where? In the Galatians? No, it was in the Lord. I believe the Lord on your behalf. This is where we are able to rest in the Lord, where we are concerned for people. We watch people stray. We watch people turn away from Christ. We pray for people. But ultimately, for people's salvation and for people's persevering sanctification, we trust the Lord, right? We have to. Our confidence is resting not in ourselves, not in the person, but in the Lord. And this battle had been waged in the minds of the Galatians. And this battle, though it was in one sense between the Judaizers and the Galatians, really this is a battle between the Judaizers and what's false and God. You're doing battle against God, false teachers. Your error that's coming from Satan is against God. And guess what? God wins right? God's gospel always wins. This is why Paul was so confident. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this regarding the Philippians. He will begin a good work and you'll be faithful to complete it at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Corinthians 15.58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your, your labor is not in vain. Listen to Hebrews 6, 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Paul was confident that the Galatians would not succumb to the falsehoods and blandishments and flatteries of these opponents. He's giving strong warnings, and he believes that his warnings are going to take root and take effect, that these truths are tonic to them for them to come to their senses. Paul's confidence is in the sufficiency of Christ. I want that to land in your hearts this morning. Do you believe that Christ is sufficient, that Christ's gospel is sufficient, that all you need is Christ? Because that's the gospel. And when we live it for other people, trying to be persuasive, we're realizing that we are resting in the sufficiency of Christ alone to bring people back on the path. Liberal theologians, beware. They do not win. Those who reject and debate the faith, those who are atheists, are foolish Christians, in fact, we should be the most confident people here on earth regarding the gospel, regarding what we know to be true about God. That can sound arrogant, but I think a lot of times people will fall prey to a false humility 
and say, oh, I don't want to say that I'm so sure of the gospel. Oh, I want to be careful not to speak up. I don't want to say right or wrong in terms of the truth. I don't want to be a Bible-thumping Christian, but we should bring the Bible to bear on people's lives if we believe eternity is at stake, right? If a little leaven, a tiniest little bit can corrupt so much, then how powerful, by contrast, is the gospel seed that we must sow that saves? Like Edith Schaefer. Edith Schaefer, she was asked why someone should believe the Christian faith, and her classic reply was, because it is true. Not because it works or makes us feel better, but because it's true. Look at the end of verse 10 as we finish up here. This is the doomsday sentiment that Paul gives, saying that these false teachers will face the highest court. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, the judgment, the crino, the judgment. Judgment is coming. And Paul's trust, again, was in the Lord. So though he fought with spiritual weaponry, he did not fight in the flesh. And he was leaving judgment to the Lord. He was using the word of God to challenge hearts, to preserve the saints, to call people to Christ, to call out those who were in error. But his ultimate trust is in the Lord realizing that he's just delivering this situation up to the Lord and his penalty. We know Christian teachers serve under a high bar, James 3, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will be judged with greater strictness. But for false teachers, the stakes are higher with eternal justice. Better a millstone be tied around a false leader's neck where he's drowned in the depth of the sea, causing little ones to stumble. Second Peter 2 might be a place you'd want to turn. This passage is very, very sobering about false prophets. Verse 1, they arose among the people. There'll be false teachers among you. They'll secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves a swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed you see that many will follow their way of sensuality and their greed in their greed they will exploit you with false words their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep they're called irrational animals They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There are blots and blemishes, reveling in deceptions. They feast on people. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Do you know anyone that is vulnerably unsteady that needs your help? They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Listen to verse 18 and 19. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Penalty. Penalty or judgment is coming. Near term, believers will be 
destabilized, but ultimately preserved. Long term, these wolves will be dealt with in eternity. Paul, again, is trusting the Lord. So in verse 10, he says, whoever he is. I don't know if Paul knew the ringleader or not, the ringleader who was going after the Galatians. Galatians 1.7 is where he said that some were troubling you. So it's a plural influence, but perhaps there was a ringleader that he's mentioning in third person to bring up whoever that person is. Perhaps he didn't know that person, but he's treating this in light of the judgment of God. Whoever that person is, God is going to judge that person in eternity. 